At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. My guest today is Eileen Morton Robinson, Professor of Indigenous Studies at Queen. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. My guest today is Eileen Morton Robinson, Professor of Indigenous Studies at Queensland Institute of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. She's a First Nations scholar who's published numerous books, including Sovereign Subjects, Talking Up the White Woman, and a collection of essays in social and cultural criticism she edited, entitled Whitening Race. Her most recent book, just out from the University of Minnesota Press, is The White Possessive, Property, Power, and Indigenous Sovereignty. Collecting a decade's worth of work, Morton Robinson is motivated by two fundamental questions. How did Aboriginal people come to be known as racialized subjects? And second, is this knowing implicated in a structure of white subjectivity that is tied ontologically to the possession of Aboriginal lands and Aboriginal people? While her work emerges out of an Australian context, her answers have broad resonance with multiple colonial worlds, including on the lands now occupied by the United States and Canada. Indeed, wherever whiteness operates possessively, in her words, to define and construct itself as the pinnacle of its own racial hierarchy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Eileen Morton Robinson, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So I want to begin by asking you to just introduce yourself and um, perhaps talk a bit about your um, disciplinary location or locations within the Australian academic world, which I know... um, precious little about, and and talk about what you teach and and research there. Okay. Um, Well, I'm a uh, Gurumpa woman of the Kondamooka First Nation people, um, and my location, or my people's land, is just outside Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland, one of the states on the eastern side of Australia. Um, I am Professor of Indigenous Studies at Uh, Queensland University of Technology, where I teach basically to postgraduates or I guess in the American context to graduate students. And uh, that teaching involves um, basically around research capacity building, uh, which I've been involved in now for some time, I guess, since I was appointed to the job at QUT. Um, So my Research interests, you know, in, in you know, I guess in one regard, has always been around whiteness and race, particularly since my PhD, and and gender. And I guess that that's, you know, I have utilised that in uh, in my teaching um, about research and research capacity building. But also, I guess I have to sort of qualify that that my disciplinary training. Um, as an undergraduate was in sociology and I moved from sociology then in my PhD to uh, feminism and after 
completing the uh, dissertation, I then moved into critical whiteness studies. I um, I think that, that that should cover about what, what you know what I do, I guess, or what awesome. I am. I see that you're also the director of the, the National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network. Could you talk a bit about mm-hmm. the work you do there? Okay, that's a uh, national hub, what we call hub and spokes model, uh, whereby we run research capacity building initiatives for early career researchers and also for postgraduate students. Again, these are around things that um, in the Australian context, which I, I you know is different mm-hmm. to the American in that we're, we're far more aligned with the British system of education. So here um, a PhD is actually usually a, a, a dissertation of between around, you know, um, 85 to 120,000 words, mm-hmm. and that's usually uh, completed in three years. Um, in the traditional sense, there, were, there was no coursework attached to that. Um, so part of my capacity building, I guess, in the Australian context has been to work with with postgraduate students who are in the throes of doing their dissertation um, and to work with them in terms of developing Indigenous research methodologies um, as well as thinking about research methods um, and how they operationalise their standpoint within uh, within their scholarship. And tied to that is also the other things about what is it to be an academic, what are the things that you need to know, um, just minor things like how to develop uh, your curriculum vitae for, for positions, um, what does it mean to seek promotion within the academy, um, how, do, you know, how do you move from being a basic um, uh, lecturer A through to a uh, professor Again, slightly different from the American system. Um, we had like lecture A, B, C, D and E, so there's five tiers in Australia um, through movement through that system. And um, so it's those kinds of things that we run workshops around. Um, and also we do critical reading groups. So I've, what I've, since my association with the National uh, or the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, I've sought to bring... Um, you know, aspects of the scholarship uh, into the curriculum for people to engage with. For example, we uh, covered um, uh, Audra Simpson, her her book on theory. We'll be looking again at some of her work on uh, Mohawk Interrupters, um, Glenn Coulthard's work, Chris Anderson's work, uh, Robert Warrior's work, um, you know, so there's, um, you know, Daniel Heath Justice, Uh, quite a number of Indigenous scholars um, whose work I try and operationalise here in order to um, connect uh, students here with different ideas uh, to to utilise in their work. That's wonderful. Um, As far as I understand the story of um, Indigenous studies, critical Indigenous studies within the US academic context, it it roughly tracks back... um, to the 1960s and the 1970s, it was hard-fought struggles on multiple campuses in in the United States, and then over the decades that followed, um, efforts to um, cohere a, uh, a a national network of scholars and researchers. NISA, as you mentioned, is only about um, eight years old. Uh, is there a, is this story similar in the Australian context? Do do the spaces for critical Indigenous studies within Australian universities um, date back to roughly the same period in the in the seventies? Yes, um, it does. Except um, in Australia, the uh, there isn't the critical mass of scholars that, um, for example, exist within the USA or Canada or Hawaii, for that matter. Um, we still predominantly Indigenous studies is um, held by non-Indigenous scholars. So we're, in that sense, uh, behind, I guess, I would say, the United States. And I think part of that it has to do with the fact that um, we didn't have access to the tertiary you know, sector until the 70s, late 70s. So, the like, at the moment, we only have 136 uh, no, sorry, 336 Indigenous scholars with PhDs yeah. uh, nationally. So, we're, you know, it, it's um, 
we're growing mm-hmm. um, in number, but um, part of I think you know part of the lag is really due to the fact that there hasn't been a lot of um, people coming through with PhDs, and that um, you know I mean when I received my PhD in uh, 1999, I was number twenty two. Um, so, you know, yeah, so it's, um, you know, a a lot of it's got to do with the fact of entrance and also support, like even today, um, you know, there's not a lot of support for Indigenous postgraduate students uh, in Australia and the cohort still roughly is basically mature age Mm -hmm. students uh, who've got mortgages, families, community, you know, so um, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard going. Um, and uh, so part of the development of uh, NIRICAN, which is the National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network, was for me that was I wanted something that I could actually um, start, I guess, a, a, a uh, trajectory and a supportive uh, environment for postgraduate students and early career mm-hmm. uh, researchers in Australia to be part of a movement to begin to establish critical Indigenous studies in the Australian context. That's great. Well, thank you for um, getting us up to speed on that. And I know many of my listeners are in North American context, and so it's, it's good to hear about the work that's happening there. I want to turn now to your, your really incredible book. That's what we're here to discuss today. It's called The White Possessive, Property, Power, and Indigenous Sovereignty. It's just out from the University of Minnesota Press and this is a book that that takes up diverse terrains of social life on multiple con- continents. But if there's a a concept that binds these chapters together, it's it's suggested in the title: this idea of possessive logics, um, their relationship to racialization and whiteness on on usurped indigenous lands. I'm hoping you can introduce us to the idea of possessive logics as you understand them, and and what kind of work. Um, that this this concept can help us do in stitching together this research agenda? Okay. Um, I guess that the idea of the uh, possessive logics for me came after years of thinking about, um, I mean, I let, let me put a context to it. I was, um, when I came to the university, I was, I had a year, basically a year seven education so I, I was not well educated in that sense. Mm. Um, but I had grown up, I was raised by my grandparents and so very much in a traditional setting. So I was very cognizant, I guess, of the fact that there was, of being immersed in a different epistemy. Mm-hmm. And that kind of crystallised for me more so when I went to university um, because I, as I, I was very much a political activist um, and what I actually began to understand, I guess, in that political activism was that I could not um, grasp this um, shifting all the time of the terrain. So that just when you thought that you had knowledge about something, then there would be a movement where you would constantly almost be like in a state of perpetual dispossession in relations with the state. Um, so I knew that there were things that I didn't know. Um, and for me, um, going to university, had that was the purpose. Um, so I began, uh, I guess, um, you know, reading uh, crazily around different areas. Um, I, I, of course, latched on to Marxism um, because it spoke to me about oppression and the poor. Mm-hmm. And um, but I also understood that that was limited in the sense that it spoke of a, a time and a place um, beyond my people's um, place. And so I really wanted to kind of understand it because I knew that the logics of capitalism uh, were very much in which we were immersed. But it, I also wanted to understand it because I wanted to kind of think about what kind of subject that it produces. So I, after reading Das Kapital, I kind of started to think, um, you know, a little bit about how uh, the subject is formed through acquisition and, and, and what that connection is in terms of uh, the taking of other people's lands. 
So I was trying to work out, you know, if there is this kind of uh, need to possess, where does it come from? How does it um, how does it begin? And that, of course, led me in in later on in my scholarship to uh, Michel Foucault, mm-hmm. and uh, it was actually reading uh, his work, in particular "Society Must Be Defended," that I started to galvanise my ideas around the idea that there is actually like one of the um, I guess or parts of the episteme that came out of the Enlightenment. But as much as um, classification, categorisation, um, you know, operationalised an episteme, so did possession. Um, and this is not something that Foucault really talks about. It's actually something, I guess, that Morton Robinson talks about. <laughs> so, and, 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 I, I, um, and I began to kind of, by reading Foucault, think about more about how um, the, you know, how a possessive subject is produced uh, through capitalism, but not just in the sense of um, owning property um, as a materiality, you know, form of materiality, but really about how discursively um, one can um, possess. And by that, I mean it's like the kinds of uh, regulatory mechanisms of the state in terms of our relations with it through citizenship and rights they in and of themselves are possessions that we take up, the way in which we can think about identity as a uh, form of possession, mm. the way in which um, we basically, you know, are, of course, um, uh, sucked into consumption through um, possession, you know, in terms of the need to acquire mm. and to accumulate so there's this, to me, there, there, there were a whole a, a range of things, I guess, which is why in, in some ways people say that my work addresses a broad canvas. Um, I suppose that it does. But I've really been trying to grapple with these logics and how they manifest. Part of it is a political agenda as much as it's an intellectual agenda in the sense that I think that if we are to um, change our relationships with the planet, we have to become less possessive subjects. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, very, very much so. And I have <laughs> many more that are coming to mind as I listen to that. Um, you talk about that and, and, and thinking particularly about the, the kinds of possession that are disavowed um, by white mm-hmm. subjects in these contexts. Um, but before we get into that, I, I guess... Um, I want to say that this is a book that that not only identifies certain um, maybe shortcomings is not the right word in in conception, conceptions within various intellectual fields, but also points the way I think through looking at various places and modes and case studies of how scholarship might better engage and and dismantle these possessive logics. Uh, but I do want to spend some time um, on the limitations within. Uh, existing intellectual production as you see it, namely within Indigenous studies and in whiteness studies. And, and you mm-hmm. talk about in the introduction about, um, about discovering a certain race blindness within uh, Native American and Indigenous studies um, and, and, continually, and a continued emphasis on culture. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk a bit more about why that's a problem and, and what do you think accounts for that problem? Ah, that is a, is something I'm still trying to sure. grapple with. Yeah. Um, I I think that uh, it it you know it became well it became quite clear for me when I started to actually read and engage with the white, critical whiteness studies literature and even the race literature in the states, and then to kind of move into reading the indigenous literature, I could kind of see that there was on the one hand. Uh, the critical whiteness studies um, basically somehow, um, you know, predicated itself on a trope of migration in which slavery was also a part of that. So the the kind of foundations of the United States in one sense, the way in which race theorists have written about it, is, is, through, is through slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seemed to me that, you know, slavery really is an outcome 
um, and as much as it is produced by uh, colonisation. And that if we think about it just in a very, you know, kind of to me a very simple way, I guess, is to, you know, you can't have slaves without dispossessing and taking Native American people's land first. So it seemed to me that it was a little bit more complex in terms of the way in which race took hold in the United States than the assumption that it becomes something um, that is only uh, the prison of the African American. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I guess in terms of um, the way in which I, I and I, you must admit, I, you know, I'm reading the American literature very much through an Australian Aboriginal woman's sure. lens, um, that when I, I read the literature, it is not as though uh, race is not named. I mean, Vine Delora did, did, you know, name race, but it is as if it never becomes a key analytical category. Mm-hmm. So it is understood that the term Indian is racist. It is, um, you know, there, there are understandings and writings around that, but it seems to me that they're not um, clearly expressed through analysis about how racialized knowledge produces the Indian, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the fact that this knowledge presupposed um, the taking of land. So I, I, so I think that, that in that sense for me it's like, you know, I actually believe that race was crucial to colonisation in its many forms um, and, and I disagree with Foucault in the sense that he says that prior to the 17th century, it's a linguistic marker. I actually think it's far more than that um, and that we it may not be race in the purely biological constructionist sense of, you know, the, the uh, after the Enlightenment, but it fundamentally to me is there in, in, in the way in which uh, people of colour are portrayed. And I guess one of the most, um, you know, we only need to think about the the Crusades into the Holy Land. We only need to start looking at the kind of artwork that's developed and the way in which people of colour are portrayed in all kinds of ways to do with darkness, to do with evil. Um, So so I think that the the kind of traces of the way in which, um, you know, race as a biological construct well, let me, let me go back a bit. I think that the idea around race as a biological construct certainly was informed by knowledges that pre-existed the development of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, you know, I, and I think about when I read, I've read some of uh, Cook's, for Captain Cook's entries, for example, and you kind of see that there's a, you know, there's a racialized knowledge that's actually working in the way in which this man is, even when he's sailing up the east coast of Australia, is looking, you know. So the, so he, so we are already known before we are even engaged. Mm. Um, and the question for me then becomes, okay, so if we are already known prior to colonisation, then how are we known? And that, of course, is why, you know, for me, Foucault was an important um, intervention, I guess, for me in, in terms of my thinking uh, because I was, um, you know, not, not convinced, I guess, with the ideas around, um, you know, race purely kind of being connected to science as a biological construct. I wonder if the aversion um, to race as an analytic within at least Mm -hmm. North American indigenous studies has to do with um, the fact that it, that, you know, it's a fear around perpetuating a a sort of misrecognition of Mm -hmm. the, the fundamentals of, of indigenous sovereignty, political relationships to land membership, uh, citizenship and first nations that obviously is so much not about, um, at least in self-understandings, about race uh, per mm-hmm. se, um, though you're also asking for not just to interrogate uh, race as a, as a white problem, as a problem of whiteness and a problem of um, that even if it's a, it's a form of misrecognition, it still needs to be interrogated because it has such profound impacts on um, 
how the colonial society operates. Is that fair to say? Yes, um, I that that's fair to say. I mean, I, I and I and I want to kind of like be really clear that actually when I um, that there are there are um, our knowledges, for example, as Indigenous peoples, are, like you will find in most languages that there really isn't a concept of race, mm. right? So when we draw out our own knowledges, you know, we may have had despairing things to say about other groups, but usually you, usually it is not in racialized terms. So the epistemes, I guess, that existed prior to our lands being taken um, did not... Um, we did not see ourselves in that racialized manner. Mm. And I would argue that part of it is we still don't. So that whole kind of thing to me around misrecognition is really to um, to speak from a sovereign episteme. Mm. Um, and, I, and I can understand that, but it is, and that, it, that um, I believe, is what Foucault would call the counter discourse. Mm. But what I, what I, what I kind of feel is left out is that when we make, um, when we assert sovereignty without understanding how racialized knowledge and racism or naming it and analyzing it as such, um, that we fail to basically look at um, the workings of racialized power. And that is to me what we're up against. You know, so it's it's the link between race rights and sovereignty, um, and how that that indigenous peoples are um, you know are, are forced to grapple with in our everyday lives um, because of the presumption of already being known mm. um, in, in a racialized way, rather than in terms not in terms of our own epistemes. If I can make that clear, that's. Mm. So uh, turning to the first chapter uh, entitled, I Still Call Australia Home, you interrogate some of these epistemies. You, you interrogate what you call the incommensurable difference uh, between, mm-hmm. on the one hand, the indigenous sense of belonging and home and mm-hmm. place and the sort of capital and colonial logics of the Australian nation state. I know you've um, mentioned this already in our conversation, but what are what are some of the elements of this of this difference as you understand them? Okay. Um for I, I and again I can, you know, really only speak um in the Australian context. Sure. And um very much about my own people. Um for the Kondamuka people, we um exist because the creator beings made us and everything around the land, the sea. And so who we are as a people are very much tied to who created us. So in that sense, um, I cannot go and become um, a Walpri person from the Central Desert, for example. I may actually be taken in through adoption to the Walpre, but I cannot be in and of Walpre. I am really in and of only Kwantamuka. So my who I am is tied integrally to the tracks of land and that that the creator of beings made. And so sovereignty in that sense for us is what uh, we call bloodline to country. So it means that um, I am tied integrally to that lens uh, in ways in which I am not tied to others. And therefore, um, my being is about being uh, kotomuka. Um, So that's a different form of sovereignty. And it's not that that doesn't have um, rights, obligations, ceremonies, etc., around becoming and being, but it is a way in which... um, one is, uh, you know, and I think as I've become older, I realise it's why uh, the law, for example, and the idea of Western sovereignty in terms of, you know, the composition of internal integrity, integrity and the way in which it's, you know, tied up with, with rights 
in the state can't see or can only want, can only seek to see our sovereignty in frames that in, in, in a frame that it itself can understand and develop. So, to, so the you know that's the incommensurability. It's like, um, you know, I can't I can't be anything other than quantum mucha. Um, but under the logic of capital, you know, I can actually go and be a, I could appeal and hope for, you know, USA citizenship through some means. So that kind of um, uh, incommensurability is, is about place and being and creation that is distinct from the logic of capital. Um, it, it is not to say that, you know, uh, Aboriginal people are outside the logic of capital. Um, we are not, but it is to understand that there is an epistemy that operates outside of that logic as well as within it. Mm. Um, and and it is, you know, and I would argue that this is really the what's at work, I guess, for all Indigenous peoples um, who resist. You know, it, it is as if our, our our existence, in one sense, um, ontologically disturbs the coloniser. You know, it, it disturbs that particular way of being uh, because it is a reminder of who are the the original peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I so I see the incommensurability in that sense that. That the ideas of sovereignty and and are different, and they they're not tied to the same logics. What do you mean by a post-colonizing society in Australia? I don't think I was familiar with that term. I've heard of sort of post-colonial and or mm-hmm. settler colonial, um, mm-hmm. and I, I also I, and and along those lines too. I'm wondering. Um, it, 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 it seems to me that settler colonialism as a concept is not one that you um, want to operationalize in your in your own work. Is that fair to say? I, 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 I did not see it. Um, I saw post-colonial, post-colonizing societies opposed to perhaps in many contemporary North American writings, we see a lot of talk of settler colonialism. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if there is a, a, a tension there for you. Yeah. Um, I take the view that the col- I, I take the view that colonization continues in a different form, mm-hmm. and hence the post so it's colonizing rather than colonial. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make it more of a you know to to be active, um, and to signify that um, there is also the other side of the resistance in that, um, so that I'm not. You know, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with settler colonialism Mm. uh, because I think that it, um, it it implies a number of things in, and and it's almost in the utterance of settler, one accepts the legitimacy of the state. Mm. And just to tie that with colonialism uh, doesn't necessarily undermine that which prefaces it. Right, so so settler colonialism as a concept for me is problematic mm. at that level. Um, so I don't I don't use it um, because I think that it's um, it, it doesn't um, speak to I guess uh, my intellectual and political uh, pursuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, mainly because I don't I, you know. I, Look, I do not accept the uh, the claims of the legitimacy of the state in Australia. Mm-hmm. Like I, I said, it, we are actually have illegal occupation. Mm-hmm. So if I see that we have illegal occupation, then I cannot accept the term settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. I, like it's a, and and it is illegal occupation. Um, we have no treaties here, and even that in itself, I think, is is you know is problematic. But it seems to me that um, there, there's just and there's yeah, I think settler colonialism. I probably need to think about it more. But 
it, it just, you know, it's just one of those terms that I just go, no, mm, I, I can't, it, I can't do this. Mm. I, I think, sure. Sorry. Go ahead. No. Well, it's, it's just to say that. So you know, at a discursive level, at the epistemologic level, there's an acceptance of settlement in the very word. Yes. Yes. And and therefore an acceptance of the legitimacy of the state. So I'm sort of coming, I guess, from the other from Kondamuka, mm. and saying, no, you, you know, you are you illegally occupy mm. my land. And I think that that is a. Um, that is a formulation that is far more politicizing, um, I would say, uh, than one of my concerns with settler colonialism is that I, I find and I and I have only begun to sort of put some thoughts together on this, too, is is that it, it can be a, somehow a depoliticizing framework because it implies, as you say, some sort of uh, finality or perpetual state um, of being of which there is no necessarily contestation or possibility of decolonization. And um, again, those are also just initial thoughts, but I appreciate, appreciate the, um, the distinction you're making there. Um, I was hoping to, to take a step back and, and, and I could ask you about just a few um, key developments within uh, Australian uh, colonial policy over the past few decades um, as I think that they're they're helpful in understanding what you're talking about in this book, um, could I ask you to um, just talk a bit about the Mabo decision? I hope I'm saying that right, or Mabo decision, yeah. uh, and yeah. the move towards the, the very fraught uh, and move, and then its subsequent reaction to multiculturalism uh, in the 1990s. Okay, so the um, I guess what happened in it, it, what happened did happen in Australia, I guess, in the 90s was um, the High Court decision um, that recognised um, native title of Indigenous peoples. This was huge um, for um, Australia, Aboriginal, well, for Aboriginal people, because it was really the first time that the law um, recognised that we were more than flora and fauna. And um, which is basically how we were positioned very much from the beginning when I, I think, as you've seen, I, I talk about how we were positioned as being in a state of nature. Right. Terra nullius, uh, is that the concept? That yeah, was... and, and terra nullius is the concept um, which, you know, basically means uninhabited lands. Um, so, the, you know, the premises upon which the um, patriarchal white sovereign Sovereignty was established in Australia is through the the um, the way in which we were classified within the law, and because of the way in which the law treated us um, as either um, uh, flora and fauna, and then later um, as supposedly subjects of the crown. Uh, we were all we were taken into custody, what I'd call taken into custody, so incarcerated on reserves and emissions and um, and, and also on cattle stations. Um, and we were very much um, treated as uh, wards of the state, and in that sense where the state basically determined um, everything really about your life. And where you could go, where you you know you, you couldn't leave reserves of your own free will, um, you um, had were subjected to all sorts of things on the reserves, like in in Australia or in Queensland in particular. Um, you know the uh, the rules on the reserves were you know right down to the very mundane, like you know making sure that you closed the gate after you left the house, um, making sure that you had the proper swimming attire on, um, making sure that uh, you know you put away your electrical drug jugs or kettles in a in a particular way, like um, who you could marry, um, and the. Uh, you know, and, and it's a not a well-known fact that the South African government actually came to Australia in the 30s and modelled the apartheid system on the reserve system in Australia. 
um, and that's actually, you know, is actually in the government hand science here in Queensland. Um, so the we had very much an apartheid system operating um, in Australia and um, when I kind of read about what happened in the States, I mean, similar, you know, similar things of putting people on reserves on the edges of towns, um, shifting and moving people like, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away from their territories. Um, the, yeah, I mean, I kind of think, um, I think I'm getting a little bit lost in my thought there, um, you know, but so I, over time, those, uh, of course, those racist pieces of legislation have been revoked. But what the Mabo decision did in particular, the state was actually in, in a bit of a bind or the courts were in a bind uh, because to actually recognise native title and, and rights in one sense also meant that all the, all the legislation that had been utilised um, to discriminate against us was actually racist and illegal. So in one sense, the High Court got around that by creating in law a new rule of extinguishment, uh, which allowed them fundamentally to retrospectively um, endorse all the legislation that happened beforehand, and um, which, if you think about it, means that um, any claim, any claims to compensation and, and that for what happened um, is out the window because it, so on the one hand, Marbo tells you you've got native title, blah, 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 and then on the other hand says, oh, yes, but all those horrible things that we did to you, it's all, it's all perfectly legal and so is Terra Nullius. Mm. Oops, we just got a little bit wrong, you know. Um, you know, excuse my sarcasm, but yeah. it's it, – um, and Marbo, again, gives us a bundle of rights. So what is, and the assumption was that, you know, we would have some form of sovereignty and political sovereignty. But, of course, that isn't what happened. What we did was just have formally recognised the rights to which we can go and fish, we can hunt on our lands, and um, we can take, um, you know, we can create artefacts on our land. Um, but those things in and of themselves are also circumscribed by other pieces of legislation. For example, on my, um, on my country, one can only take a bucket full of shellfish um, because under the Fisheries Act, citizens are only allowed to take one bucket of shellfish, shulgaries we call them, um, themselves. So what the non-Indigenous people have is what we have, even though it's recognised as native title, the truth of the matter is that you're fundamentally not really getting anything more than uh, what you had without that formal recognition because my people still, you know, partake in hunting and gathering and taking yugri and other shellfish. We've done that without, you know, any, any formal recognition of it and we don't need a recognition by the state because that's part of our sovereign right to do so. Um, but the way in which the native title uh, developed is basically to, um, you know, give, give us these insidious uh, forms of rights. Uh, for example, the other side of that is there is no right to reside in native title, right? So underneath native title um, uh, that is actually uh, granted by the, the state, they create other pieces of legislation that will allow people then to to reside on country. But native title in and of itself has no right to reside, you know. So the question for me is like, so what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so if the Native Title Act itself does not formally recognise the right to reside, what is it actually giving us? It's not giving us land back. It's giving us use. And that use of things actually has to comply with other pieces of legislation. With non-Indigenous sort of regulatory. With non absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so, um, <laughs> you know, and, and yet it's played up as one of the greatest things that's happened oh. when in actual fact what it, and what it has done has been quite destructive amongst communities because, of course, as you can imagine, um, 
you know, people who all of a sudden think that this recognition is going to bring something, um, there's, you know, there's power struggles that existed within communities and creating more distress, um, more, um, you know, uh, uh, just health problems, um, you know, you name it. I mean, it just is really, I think, a very um, cruel um, uh, thing that has occurred through Native Title and uh, to gain the things that we already had. So I'm, I'm, I'm far more, um, you know, I, th- I think, and, and what I've seen over time is the way in which the nation state here constantly um, portends to give and then takes it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because any any piece of legislation, as Foucault tells us, any kind of regulatory mechanism never exists in and of itself on its own. It is always worked down in tandem with other pieces of legislation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and um, and we see that even when there, there, were, there were treaties in the States uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of thinking that it's probably I've got to do more work on that, but I believe that, uh, you know, we are, we are at a time in history where we're actually seeing more and more of our incorporation within the mechanisms of the state mm. through various means. Huh. Did you put the um, sort of Australian government apology to Indigenous people in 2008 in that, um, as Glenn Coltard, you know, talks about in his book, he, you know, he, he views those kinds of apologies that Canada also extended as a similar kind of containment almost by suggesting that harm or injury is over um, in some way. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the apology to the apology meant a lot to the stolen generation in Australia, mm-hmm. and people were were very, you know, it, it had a lot of affect, you know, in that sense. So a lot of emotional capital uh, was invested in it uh, because there was a recognition at one level about that something bad had happened, and that people had actually suffered. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that it. You know, it's that classic kind of, um, and I, I put this very much in terms of the kind of the stoic British, um, you know, attribute of, of moving on after one apologises, mm-hmm. one moves on. And so, and, and I agree with Glenn in that sense, what happens is that um, you, be, you become contained through the apology to the degree that it has been stated. And that, um, but now you have to get over it, right? You know, and and so, um, you know, the apology in that sense works in the interests of the white population in Australia, because of that you know virtue can be recuperated by the fact that this statement has been made, and now that we've said we're sorry, we all need to live together in harmony and move on. Mm-hmm. You know what the apology doesn't do is actually face the fact that um, that is just the beginning of the journey, that it's not the end of the journey. Similar, too, with the adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which um, similarly, I think, uh, has been has been understood, at least at times, as of a piece with the gestures of apology and reconciliation um, that have come from the Australian and Canadian governments, less so the United States, though, of course, it's quite telling that the um, final, the, the, the longest holdouts with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People were um, the sort of Anglo-colonizing states of the United States and Canada um, and Israel as a different kind of colonial project. Um, uh, what's your understanding of the UN Declaration of Indigenous People within this this book, The White Possessive, and, and what you call virtuous racial states. What do you mean there? Um, that piece, I guess, comes about by I was, I, I, again, this, this came because of my, my connections and, and discussions with colleagues at NASA. Um, I really 
um, have been talking to Robert Warrior for some time about developing a theory of colonisation from our, and, oh, well, really empire from the Indigenous, from Indigenous theory. Uh, because when it was when I was looking at the way in which um, uh, Canada, uh, New Zealand, um, the USA and Australia responded to the declaration mm-hmm. in terms of rejecting it and then when they decided to agree with that, um, how very similar the discourse was in all of those countries. And it, it that to me you know, really talked about what I saw it as an axis of uh, white patriarchy at work um, that, um, you know, whose who's logics, possessive logics, were, were almost working in tandem uh, to ensure that um, the Indigenous peoples in those countries' um, rights were not going to be um, attended to. And and if they were going to be attended to, which is what they then decided, they would be attended to within the mechanisms that already exist. So we're not talking about the rights of Indigenous peoples bringing forth anything really new. We just create um, or extend policy that already exists or laws that already exist to, um, to tick off the boxes of uh, meeting um you know, those declarations. And um, I think, you know, you can see in the, the way in which even like Obama in one sense has, you know, has a, has a meeting, calls people, all the na- Native, calls Native Americans to the table to talk. But basically he's still, the, the, you know, the language and that, that he uses to discuss um, moving forward really are still within uh, the frameworks that already exist. Mm-hmm. So it and and so for me it was about looking at how virtue circulates there um, again about a recuperation you know it's like um, at one level it's well no we don't want it we we can't, can't do this you know we can't acknowledge all these things and let's get bogged down um, in the UN in uh, talking about whether or not you you know you can classify yourselves as peoples. Um, let's 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 go on for like over a decade just on that discussion, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and you know. So again, uh, to to basically hose down aspirations of Indigenous peoples, and and also to, I think, uh, you know, um, work to build what it was what, that they how they were going to to respond. Um, even though in in not respond like in saying we're not going to sign off, um, they they seem to me to be um, uh, rejecting it because they could. I think they actually really thought that it somehow would um, question their sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so they had to grapple with how they could cover that and hence in the responses, that's what I'm saying, they, they just move it, move the discourse so that let us um, embrace these things but let's embrace them in the way in which we basically are embracing them, you know. So it's no kind of, no kind of shift to me um, and I have read some of the reports from uh, the Special Rapporteur from the UN uh, on, and that's also borne out by those reports and also the discussions that are still continuing at the UN that, you know, um, nothing's really changed for Indigenous people since the declarations come out. Okay. Surprise! Yes, surprise. <laughs> surprise! Yeah. I, think, I think President Obama is particularly adept at that sort of, um, I don't know if interpolation might be the word or... or uh, absorbing within um, within uh, comfortable frameworks things that might otherwise have been um, insurgent and hard to contain. Um, he's been quite capable at that. Um, I've been speaking with Eileen Morton Robinson, the author of The White Possessive, Property, Power, and Indigenous Sovereignty. It's just out from the University of Minnesota Press. I wanted to ask you about this remarkable cover image on the book, um, it's a very striking image. Uh, I'm wondering if you had particular 
say in that or um if uh if it spoke to you any particular way if it was just the 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 wonderful graphic design people at the University of Minnesota Press who are I think quite good among the academic publishers um I um uh, no I had a say in this and um <laughs> you always hear that authors don't so I never assume but I well I know I mean I I basically had a say in every book uh, the cover of every book mm-hmm. because I want the cover to signify what the contents are mm-hmm. you know I don't want somebody to bring pick up something that is quite doesn't speak to the contents um, because, you know, it, um, it it seems to me to only be fair to those that want to purchase the book that you at least give some sign of, kind of sign about the journey that they're going to be on mm. and also to uh, reflect on the outside of the text what is also within the text. So I, um, in, in, yeah, so what I did was I kind of just did a, a Google search for um, a, a map, a colonial map, um, because I wanted something that spoke to the spread of empire. And as luck would have it, this map was actually came up and it was out of copyright so it could be used. Um, and I sent it off to uh, Minnesota Press who fell in love with it mm. and um, put it together. And, and I think that, um, you know, uh, Britannia sitting uh, on the front of the cover um, in the way in which she does uh, to me, signifies, um, you know, spread of empire. But it also, to me, in one sense, signifies, because this is an old map, it is still really a new map. And what I mean by that is, you know, the traces of empire are alive and well. Um, they have not gone. Um, and if they did, um, well, I, there'd be a lot of happy Indigenous people. <laughs> However... <laughs> To say the least, um, yeah. To say the least, but um, I think uh, so. I did. I did have have a say in it, and I yeah, I, I love the, what they did with it. Uh, Minnesota Press came up with the apostrophe, and um, you know did a fantastic job in in putting the cover together. Um, and Jason Weedman in particular was very supportive of, of this initiative. So um, I'm you know, in in debt to him and my gratitude to Minnesota Press for, um, I think, um, publishing a book which um, I I didn't really think anybody would be interested in really. Um, and, um, I, 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 well, I guess that's still yet to be ascertained, but um, I hope that it does a useful work and I hope that it, it can take us to think about possession and to think about, um, you know, what, about what being a possessive subject means in terms of our relations with the planet. And that I, you know, I, um, I'm hoping that my future work will delve, will become, bring that far more clearly into view um, so that we could, we can start to think about uh, do we, you know, do we continue on the road of it that we're on, and the extinction, uh, possibly, of, of humans and everything that lives, um, or do we step back and use some indigenous philosophy to understand that we, as um, living things, are worth no more or no less than all other living things. Um, therefore, um, you know, we need to. Um, not see ourselves as being worth more than than them and that we can take as if we own everything when we don't. I think that is the fundamental question of the, um, of the years to come. And, and, uh, when we are now seeing, I think the, uh, at a global scale, the, um, impacts of this possessive logic and where it leads. There's, Absolutely. there's so much more we, we didn't get to discuss today. I mean, there's really uh, multiple more incredibly rich and provocative chapters on, on the beach, uh, which is something I really wanted to, to get into. And, um, uh, you know, moving towards different research agendas and, and telling a, a story about um, 
there's just there's a tremendous amount more, and I encourage our listeners to uh, pick up a copy as soon as possible. Professor Morton Robinson, thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on the publication of this wonderful book. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. That was Eileen Morton Robinson, author of The White Possessive, Property, Power, and Indigenous Sovereignty, just out from the University of Minnesota Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all of the past podcasts free of charge. We're also on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening. 